0: We need not more regulation, we need smarter regulation and regulation that really is based in science. There's often a fine line
1: between wanting the best for someone and not being too overbearing. You can encourage them to make good choices and hope they take your advice, but ultimately free will prevails and choices are made independently. Anyone who has children or younger siblings knows exactly what I'm talking about the government and the policies they enact are often walking that same kind of fine line. Stay with me on this one. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring the responsibility of regulatory institutions and how their imposed regulations can be made smarter. While the exact definition of law has long since been debated, the laws and regulations enacted by our governments are, in theory, meant to protect citizens, equalize opportunity, and create a unified playbook of sorts that all citizens are meant to follow. Dictatorial governments excluded, of course, and very heavy emphasis on the in theory here, because it must be stated that many laws, both in the past and still in place today, are rooted in systemic oppression and designed specifically to uphold that oppression. Our understanding of this landscape and access to knowledge is much more sophisticated today than it was even a few decades ago. News reports from various media sources have all touted 2020 as the year of social activism, which rightfully puts more pressure on governments and institutions to really get it right. Today's guest has devoted much of her career to working within that intersection of information asymmetry between people, companies, and regulations. Economist Antoinette Shore specializes in entrepreneurial finance, household finance, access to finance, and financial technologies, essentially any and all things finance and accounting related. She's examined the impacts of big data collection, the disparity between those with different levels of financial literacy, and the psychology behind certain investment decisions. In general, how have technological changes, big data and fintech, changed financial services for consumers?
0: Fintech has been building, obviously, on machine learning, big data, AI. And I think over the last decade, it has quite rapidly transformed the retail experience in consumer finance. On the one hand, it has made a lot of things much more Um, convenient, efficient, and comfortable, right? You don't have to stand in line to pay for anything. You have online access, cell phone access um, to your payments, to your loans. Similarly, the fact that we can use big data to make better credit scoring decisions has very much brought down the cost of consumer finance. Interest rates or the spreads over the interest rates are much lower now than, say, 10 or 20 years ago, even. But very clearly, there's also a possibility of creating more fragility in the market. So, some of my work has actually looked at the fact that say financially less educated or less sophisticated people can also be heard due to the fact that now lenders and financial institutions know much more about your behavioral biases in a way about your weaknesses and therefore then might find it easier to exploit them.
1: Speaking of consumers who are less financially sophisticated, you found that credit card companies target them specifically through certain tactics. How do they achieve this type of targeting
0: and what do these tactics look like? One interesting feature of the U.S. credit card market is that most of the credit cards are sold via mailers or letters that are sent to you in in the mail. And those letters then can be targeted very much towards your particular characteristic, right? Right. The beauty is that we have fine-grained data at the personal level where we see the financial mail that different households are receiving or did receive over the last 20 years. And what this allowed us to do is to use, actually, machine learning to classify the letters themselves, what interest rate did you get, what over-limit fees, what overdraft fees, but also how the letter is displayed. Do you show the most important information on the front page versus only hidden on the last page? Um, What do you emphasize? What kind of photos were used in the letter, etc.? And what we find there is that people that are less educated and financially less prepared are receiving, first of all, offers that are much more backloaded in its fee structure. So they actually typically receive pretty low interest rates relative to their credit type, but then... Their late fees, their over-limit fees, their penalty APRs, or their penalty interest rates, are very high. And they are typically hidden on the back page in small font, even with very complicated language. Because we have all this information about the letter, we can even classify the complexity of language page by page. When this information is provided to less educated people, quite counterintuitively, right, it's made more complicated or it uses more complicated language when it's aimed at less educated people. Are there any net
1: positives to these companies collecting more personalized consumer data? The plus side
0: is that you can now, on the one hand, target people with the type of products that they really want. What we have seen is, Now companies and the market overall is much better at offering you things when you really need them. It's just more convenient and you're in a way better informed because of it. And then the other big benefit is that the cost of credit has definitely gone down. Because if I can actually now screen people better who are very bad credit, it makes credit for everyone cheaper. And so that we've definitely seen. This is exactly why there's this tension, that on the one hand, we want the industry to innovate, we want the industry to use the data to help us live in a world where decisions are much more efficient, but it has the side effect that the people who are the most fragile and maybe are not able to shop exactly for the right credit card or for the right mortgage loan, they are then the ones where this type of data can have negative effects.
1: So how can this be balanced? What can be done to stop companies from taking advantage of less financially literate people while also putting the right or most personalized
0: offerings in front of people? At its heart is this big question, which is what to do when the consumer is not prepared to really engage in the market. Because as we know from economic theory, if consumers have behavioral biases, actually competition can lead to very adverse outcomes because then it actually becomes in the interest of the financial service companies to deceive consumers. Because if the consumer doesn't shop for the right characteristics of a credit card, right, then of course the market follows suit. And so it's a big question how to regulate this in the U.S., The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Card Act, which was passed in 2011, actually tried to limit some of the biggest abuses in the credit card industry. So, for example, charging over-limit fees or charging very high late fees was curtailed in that law, which were some of the things right, we had also pointed out were some of the most troublesome strategies. What we're doing right now actually is to study how those regulatory changes now affect the market. And what we see is that the industry is finding different ways of now communicating to customers because they cannot use, say, a setup where you're charging very low interest rate up front and then all the late fees and over-limit fees are very high, but now you can't make them that high. What we have seen is that the industry is now using a strategy, for example, where they're giving teaser rates that then turn into very high interest rates after, say, six months or 12 months, this strategy of backloading and hiding is focusing on different aspects of the card, right? Because they're designed very complicated structures. The reason why I'm saying this is that while the regulation has curtailed some of the worst abuses, in some sense, regulation will always be a step behind the industry. And so... It is, in a way, a difficult game between industry and regulator how to really make the market fair for the least prepared people in that market. How do you define what it means to be financially literate? financial literacy seems to be very much correlated with general literacy and education. So that's clearly a very strong effect that even numeracy is obviously important in financial literacy because if you have trouble um, calculating a net present value or just even a compound interest, right, then it makes it already much more difficult. So education is definitely one big step in the direction of making people more financially literate. But you know, financial illiteracy is not just a matter of smartness and education. It's also a matter of how much attention you pay. So I would say I'm probably financially very literate, but there are many financial decisions I might make when I'm distracted and when I'm not paying enough attention. And that also can lead to very bad decisions. And Those type of mistakes, actually, we've seen in the data, people make at any age and even at pretty high levels of education.
1: I really like that framing. It's not about having a textbook-worthy level of comprehension. It's also about being aware. There's something very inclusive and attainable in thinking of financial literacy in those terms. You mentioned earlier that regulation always seems to be a few steps behind what is actually happening within the industry. With all of your work and
0: research on this topic, how would you recommend the asymmetry be addressed? The takeaway from a lot of this research that I've been doing is that, number one, that financial regulation, consumer financial regulation has to be nimble and in a way has to be very dynamic because what might have been a great policy even just five years ago might be outdated today. The regulator really has to always stay on its toes to follow the latest trends in the industry. And then the other thing I think that's really important that follows from this research is that regulation has to be evidence-based. It cannot be something where the regulator would like to do something but doesn't understand the unintended consequences. And so ultimately, this is by now, I guess, almost a cliche, but we need not more regulation, we need smarter regulation and regulation that really is based in science.
1: While regulation during the best of times may lag behind what's currently happening, big events can also completely reshape regulation. Shore devoted years of research into examining the financial crisis of 2008 and the effect that it had on individuals and mortgage markets. In a paper published 10 years after the crash, The Role of Housing and Mortgage Markets in the Financial Crisis, Shore and her co-researchers found that it was very much a middle-class crisis rather than a subprime one. Subprime borrowers refer to those who are considered to be high-risk, either due to poor credit scores or the assumption that collecting the repayment of loans will be difficult. Because of this, subprime borrowers can face difficulty in getting loans at all, and if they do, do so at a higher lending interest rate. What were your findings in this paper?
0: So the surprising results that we found in the mortgage market is that actually this idea that this was a subprime crisis is a complete misnomer. What we show in our research is that the biggest increase in dollars lent was not to subprime. It was actually to the middle and upper middle class. And the reason is because these people take much bigger loans and they expanded dramatically. And then what we found is that the defaults, so the dollars in defaults were much higher in the middle class and the upper middle class than in the subprime. So, The big misunderstanding that happened in the press and even in some of the research is that the level of defaults are always high in subprime, right? Even in the best of times, so no crisis at all, default rates in subprime are around 6%. And then in the crisis, it went all the way up to 20% in some areas or even more. But then you look at the middle class and upper middle class. They, pre-2008 in the US, had literally a zero default rate. And then in the financial crisis, they went up between 6 and 10%. So while the number 10% seems much lower than the number 20%, the increase in default was astronomical. And the banks were unprepared for that default, because the mantra had always been middle class people, upper middle class people don't default on their mortgages. And so what we show is that It's indeed defaults and distress in middle-class and upper-middle-class loans that really had the biggest impact on the system. Why do you think this was so misinterpreted by both the media
1: and initial research in those early days?
0: You would drive through neighborhoods where 20% or 25% of houses were in foreclosure. That is obviously horrible, and it's also very obvious while, say, In middle class or upper middle class neighborhoods, when 6 to 8% of people are in distress, that's not as visible. But because the loans are so big in this neighborhood, and also because the loans themselves were not priced for this high default rates, that's really what hit the financial system the most. There's another aspect of it, which is absolutely not to be downplayed, which is that, of course, people who take on subprime loans experience the most foreclosures and distress and displacement. And so the stories in the press about people losing their homes, families being uprooted, obviously were much more frequent and and pretty horrible for poorer people. While middle class people or upper middle class people often, maybe even when they lose their house, they still have savings or they have other ways of creating stability. One reason why poverty is so horrible is because it makes you so susceptible to any type of shock that happens to your family. What we also find in our research is that post-2008, a lot of regulation has made it much tougher for poor people and marginal borrowers to get loans, even though they were not at fault. And so what we've seen is in the time period between, say, 2008 and 2012, when prices were actually very low... Poorer people were not able to buy houses because they didn't have enough access to the financial market, right? And people do need mortgages to buy houses. And so we spent a lot of taxpayer money to allow richer people to buy houses again post-financial crisis when prices were low. But we actually kept poorer people out of that market And I think this is actually a big policy mistake. And you can see now, okay, access to finance is loosening again in the mortgage market, but now prices are also high again. And so you don't want a situation where financial policy is exactly counter-cyclical in a way to make it hardest for the poorest people to buy houses when the prices are the lowest. Shore was not only
1: compelled to explore the regulation of the housing market as a research topic, she was inspired to help those who are affected by it. She co-founded Ideas 42, a nonprofit organization that uses a combination of behavioral economics and psychology to address social problems, including everything from poverty and prison reform to health and consumer finance, and of course, housing.
0: At Ideas42, we did a lot of work in trying to help people keep their houses and improve the structure of loan modifications and so on. But it's very important for policy to understand that it wasn't the fault of the subprime borrowers who drove the crisis. What were some of the other motivations behind the creation of Ideas42? Very often organizations or even governments and regulators wouldn't see the behavioral problems that were holding back the effectiveness of their programs because they were not asking the right questions. They never even thought about the fact, right, that it's not just all about incentives, but maybe things like how you present the information, how easy you make it to access the information, right? Whether you are speaking, you know, a different language to someone who, you know, say has procrastination issues versus self-control issues, and so on. We created Ideas 42 as, in a way, a vehicle to use our own research to do good in the world. That sounds maybe almost corny and crazy, but in the end, academia is a contract between society and academic institutions. And the fact that we have the freedom to do this type of work means that society also needs to see that we are working in the interest of society. If this consensus gets broken, I think the role of academics and the role of experts is diminished. And I think that is obviously not good for the world, but it's on all of us, you know, the responsibility to not let this happen.
1: Join us next time for our final episode of this season of Women in Economics, where we'll explore culture's impact on economic decision-making. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.